Thank you all for tuning in to the AFT Construction Podcast, episode 19. We bring back JJ Levinsky for a third visit. And some of our listeners have asked the question, how do you deal with a difficult client? That was a topic they wanted us to address. So JJ came on and we spoke about that. What we can do as builders to be more prepared uh, in dealing with some of these situations and what we can do from our side and then how to deal with some of the things that come up uh, throughout the course of construction. Welcome to the AFT Construction Podcast. I am Brad Levin and we are here with episode three, our third visit at least, with JJ Levinsky. Glad to be here, Brad. Well, it's good to be here, JJ. So again, most of you will notice who listen, we have this uh, recurring visit with JJ. Uh, we have a lot of admiration for JJ and everything he's doing, and we want to address some difficult topics from episode two. We talked about our cost analysis, right? GMP, cost plus. Yes. So to our listeners, kind of give them a little caveat of what we're going to speak about today. <laughs> well, I guess we're going to hit the topic that no one wants to talk about, and that is dealing with difficult clients or difficult situations. Maybe it's induced by us, maybe it's induced by them, but how do we get into these situations? How do we get out of them? Absolutely. So it's a great topic. We've actually had a lot of our listeners ask about this, you know, how to deal with difficult clients. And it's kind of funny because we do have clients to listen. We have subcontractors and other people to listen. And some of these problems are self-incurred. So JJ in every company, right, in the customer service industry, we all deal with the same question. You know, how do we deal with these difficult clients? So let's take it this at a different angle what are some things that we can do better as a contractor to set that expectation with the client well i think first and foremost we're so eager to make a sale and to make our potential clients happy that we avoid this conversation and this question in the first place and so digging deeper into oneself and how you go through your own internal process is probably the the form you know the first and foremost question you have to ask yourself and then train your your you know employees and your staff and your team to address it at the same level it can't be just one or the other you know it has to be a symbiotic type answer in your team don't you agree i do well what's funny is you're kind of alluding to this i think a lot of times in sales we want to be yes people right we can do anything sure you want this built in x days you want this budget you want this house no problem right And, and the reason you alluded to is we want the sale you know, we want that customer, we want that project for the portfolio. Maybe there's something that attracts us to it, so we become a yes person. Or even deeper, we think that uh, the deeper challenge, we the, we want to rise above that somehow, some way. I mean, I, I've been there before where a very difficult project comes in, and you're like, wow, I've never seen something like this before. I want to do this, only to find out that was the worst match at a personal level or an intrinsic level. And, you know, the tangible part of the project got muted by that whole equation, if you will. Yeah, and sometimes in any company, I mean, every company is different. If you're a big company, you may have sales reps. So they're out there selling the brand and they're selling the product. And they may be speaking a language or promising something, setting an expectation that now the project manager and superintendent have to fulfill. And it may be unrealistic. It may be realistic. I mean, some of the things I know that we've dealt with, I mean, let's just talk about one of the biggest reasons that customers are frustrated with their contractor is time, right? It's schedule that we promise up and then we don't achieve it. So what are some parameters you've seen or that we could set as a builder to better manage that expectation of schedule with our client? It kind of goes back to something that we talked about in our last episode with again, communication. Of course, we can't stress that enough. But building in contingency into the schedule as well as into the budget, because it's not, 
if it's going to happen, it's when it's going to happen, especially in the market today. So all the pre-planning, all the surrounding yourself with the best people, mathematically it's impossible to pull off the perfect project. So why not address it right up front and then have those tough conversations? Because it hits two things. One, you're going to find out early and often if that is your the client that you want to work with and vice versa. They should be looking at you through the same set of eyes. Um, because if that happens early on, you might have problems later on. Uh, secondly, it, it, it just it sets that tone of can someone see the, the pragmatic and real results of what's going to happen and then how do we work through that as a, as a team. So again, back to that communication and then even if you have to, go through a, a hypothetical. Hey, when this happens or if this happens, how will we address it? And Go ahead, Brad. Yeah, so it's interesting. You know, one thing that we've looked at, I mean, you talk about contingency schedule. And I remember being in college, you know, as we were learning scheduling and you're building that schedule. Of course, any, whether you're commercial, residential, critical path determines the outcome of your schedule. So as a builder, you really need to understand what are the components that actually affect the schedule and how do you track that? Well, you also have things that overlap. So when we provide a schedule to the client, are you providing them the best case scenario on your schedule or are you providing them the worst case, you know? So then that way, if the homeowner's checking it every day, you know, at least are you on schedule? Are you behind schedule? And one thing that we've done that's really helped us, especially lately right now, some of the labor challenges is when we know that we're going to lock in, you know, a certain sub, whether it be the concrete guy, the framer, we'll call them, they have the plans and we'll audit them and say, okay, how many crews are you going to have available to us? How many people are we working on this house? What is going to be your time frame? Is this an eight month or eight week frame job? Is this 10 week? And then we'll build on the schedule. So they're committing to something that now we can put on paper for our client, which will help them. And I think that's one thing that's missed is a lot of builders either are working off project history or guesstimation without vetting the sub and figuring out, okay, based on your workload, you know, when can you start and what's your manpower going to be? What's, what are you doing in commercial that would be similar? I mean, because you're dealing with schedules that are even tighter windows. You're dealing with something that maybe four months, right, to build a school, as we mentioned. We do the same thing. I mean, if you don't get a 100% buy-in from your trade partners, you've already lost the battle. So allowing them to dictate the schedule to you, not dictate it, but at least set what they think the parameters should be, and then marrying all those together. The other thing that I like, and I don't know if I can't remember if, I just, this was happenstance or if a mentor showed me this, but every, whatever, let's say every six weeks or every three or four milestones, you build in three or four days of fluff or float and explain that to the owner of this could be a weather delay. This could be a material delay. This could be, hey, Joe got his toe slammed in the door delay. Who knows? But that way you set a realistic expectation. If you gain it back, it's kind of like contingency in the budget. Hey, owner. If we gain these days back, that's good. We got three days back. And then that way, the next six to eight week period, when something does happen, then you're back to net neutral or whatever. Again, it's just setting a realistic expectation of here's the critical path for, let's say, 10 months. And then every six to eight weeks, build in a, a float schedule and define that and go over it with not only the internal team, but the external team, meaning, you know, your, arch, your architect and designer and the homeowner themselves. And just setting that tone again gives them both the risk and reward. You know, it's kind of like liquidated damages. You, you want liquidated damages? Okay, what's my bonus for finishing a week early? Mm -hmm. And then you see everyone What's the incentive? Yeah, mm -hmm. you see everyone squirm. So it's like, listen, if we're truly here in a contractual and uh, our partnering attitude, 
it has to be both from the schedule as well as the budget. No, that's great insight. And so, and, and something else, you know, as you were speaking, it made me think about, you know, some of the mistakes I've made in my past are, you know, meeting with the client and really walking them through the construction process. Cause some of our clients are maybe first time home buyers. So they haven't built a home before. Some of them are very savvy, you know, they've built many. And what I've noticed with the first time is, you know, that schedule, there'll be times where they go by and, you know, they'll say, Hey Brad, no one's at the house today. Right. And they're concerned because interest is accruing in their construction loan and there's dollars out there. And there's a process, you know, from a builder side, we all understand that at the beginning of a home, especially if you're on a hillside, well, there's a process here. We have to, you know, you're surveying, you're digging footings, you're inspecting the footings, you're doing rebar. And so you can't really put a ton of manpower on the site because there's this process. So when you have a rain day in the middle of that, when footings are dug and they're full of water, it really delays the schedule, so it's important for us to track that and communicate that with the customer and say, look, this is critical path, and I can't put a lot of people, but I can make it up, as you're alluding to. You know, later in the schedule, when the home's drywalled, I can you know, put 25 people in this house and really make up these days, but at the time, it may look like it's slow processing, so it's setting that ex- you know, expectation with the client. So, JJ, are you guys using any technology as far as um, daily logs or tracking especially when it comes to weather delays or labor delays or maybe even changes by the client that affect your schedule. Yeah, and I I have a funny feeling it's probably the same as what you guys do. I think we talked about some of these apps last time. I I think you said you guys are using Builder Trend and anything like that. In the commercial market, we're using similar technologies. And as much as the gathering of the data is important, it's how you disseminate and share it that's even more important. So our kind of our MO is to once a week just really share that in the most transparent and pragmatic terms to everyone involved and so that again they can get their buy-in um and we we try to listen listen as much as we talk there i know that's easier said than done sometimes but your trade partners will will really set the tone and engage you of how well you're doing because if if they're showing up at all on schedule a lot that means you're going to doing a great job of communicating the thing I love to hear is we're at your job because your job is cleaner, better organized, blah, 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 versus our competitors. That means you're doing it right. And hopefully that, that transcends also to the owner's perception and how they look at it. I know you're very proud. We've talked numerous times about the cleanliness of your jobs. If you can get them there, that's half the battle. It is. So what do you do? Because even if you have a clean job or you're paying them promptly and they're not showing up and maybe they're burdened, they're not communicating, what are you doing I don't want to say strong arm them, but what are you doing to commit them for manpower despite the delays or challenges they're having internally? I think just the honesty part has been our biggest attribute is don't overpromise and underdeliver. You know that's the that's like the worst thing you can do, um, but just clear, concise communication every week. And then I think you touched on it, paying promptly. You don't need to pay too early. You don't need to pay too late. Just pay what you promised. Um, I think I've posted it on social media a number of times, uh, and we'll give a shout-out to Larry Wingett, who's a local uh, celebrity on different podcasts and everything. It's like, do what you say when you need to do, when you, when you said you were going to do it, and how much you said you were going to do it for. You follow those three things, and yet you have a pretty happy audience, both from the internal and external components. Yeah, and I think one thing we tend to do as builders is, you know, whether – we're using a scheduling system or we're sending out emails and texts. We're, we're missing the gap there in either follow-up or accountability. And so one thing I've noticed with some of our new hires is that 
you know, they'll send out an email and say, I'm ready for you. You know, plumber, I'm ready for you in two weeks. And then that's the extent of it. Then that day shows up and they're like, where's our plumber, right? And what we've told them is, you know, you need to reach out to them and send that initial, hey, two-week out, look ahead. We're scheduling you for this day. And then in three days, you follow up. Are you going to be there that day? And then the week before, you follow up, you know, three or four times. And then the morning of, are you going to be here today? It's that constant follow-up. And I think most builders, because of the time, or superintendents, we get busy. It's that constant follow-up. you got to make them accountable, yeah. right? And and me being an old fart per se, I laugh because I'm, I was probably late to the tech scheme, and I see the effectiveness of that, um, you know, through a lot of different avenues. And so to use multiple media to communicate with those people, I think is the key. So where I was very email savvy and maybe too much email, I've tried to now use text more because that's that's how they want to be communicated to. Now what's the What's the next chapter in that communication cycle? I don't know, but I'm more attuned to being aware of it so that I'm not late to the game the next time. And It's great insight because you also have to know your audience, right? I know that we have some contractors that only respond to text, right? They're working, you know, as they have a chance to look at their text, they don't want to have phone calls every five minutes. So some of them only want phone calls. I know we had one sub that would get super mad if I sent him a text and he's like, Brad, I'm not a millennial. Like, you need to call me. So... It's really understanding their communication, what's most effective, and then speaking to them in those terms because some of them don't even check their email. So, you know, we'll tell our supers, why are you emailing them? You know, they're not checking this stuff. You need to be texting or calling, you know, regularly. But the nice part is, is the people that are selling us the softwares and the apps and the tools to get there, that is optionality that's available now. We just need to be more aware of it and then connect those dots and get it out to everyone. Absolutely. So, again, I think or at least what we've discussed is a lot of these challenges when we talk about difficult clients and may get upset about scheduling as we're alluding to, it's all about communication, right? It's setting expectation, helping them either be educated about the process or understand how we manage things and then making trades accountable. One technique we've done that I've spoken about previously is, you know, we have change orders like every builder does for their work, but we do what's called a time change order. So sometimes We'll have an owner change that adds a large scope of work at a critical point in the process. And not only is there a cost involved, but we know that that's going to add two weeks to the schedule. So we have them sign a change order showing that, hey, this is going to add two weeks to the building schedule. And it, it, it it's really helped, especially with weather delays. If we have extensive rain, which I know our contractors listening around the country may laugh at us in Arizona because they're dealing with snow and a lot of other things that we don't deal with. But... We do have issues when it rains here. It doesn't rain, and our guys are somewhat soft sometimes with the rain. So when that affects our schedule, we'll notify the client and have those delayed days added. Because what happens is at the end of the day, if we hit our schedule still, it's great. You know, they're happy because we could have pushed it. Or if we're pushed out a little bit, at least there's that documentation. So it's not this finger pointing because it's hard to remember from A to B everything that happened, you know, over the course of a year. So from your guys' side, I mean, when you're dealing with liquidated damages, how would you deal with that on a commercial project? How are you guys documenting these delays, and how are you getting owners to sign off on those? Well, we do the same thing as you do. Most the AIA or equivalent forms that we use for change orders, they have a time element that we'll put in. But a lot of times we're doing GMPs and other types of contracts that even if we even if those instances happen, we have to absorb it. We typically don't see probably the scope changes that you do in the custom market. Um, having been there, I know that your deltas are much bigger than ours. 
again, going back to, we have probably a more defined drawing specification front end than typically you might do. You guys do a lot more design build as you go. I don't care what you say. I mean, that's just synonymous is, with the yeah. industry. So having said that, our the paradigm is a little bit different, but, but not much. So yeah, I guess we're not forced with it as much. We just have to roll up our sleeves and figure out, like you said earlier, is, hey, owner, we lost two weeks here, but we can make it back up because of the way we stacked the schedule in the first place. In other words, we built that those contingencies in. Now we're exercising on them. And if we've done better than expected, great. But at least we've not gone over that. So how do you encounter when, let's say that you're having to put manpower on the job and we've all been on these commercial jobs where you're stacking manpower. How do you deal with uh, costs, whether it be overtime or extra hours or double shift? You know, how do you deal with that as a GC? Is that an expense to the client in some cases? Is that something you're absorbing? What are you guys doing? Great question. I think it's a little bit of everything. Um, back to how we build the contingencies on a lot of those GMP jobs. Um, for those that haven't listened before, a lot of times we'll do an incentive, incentivized cost sharing on that. So that way the owner understands that this isn't just fluff for fluff's sake. It has a, has a merit and a purpose so that we can accommodate these things. But if they know it ahead of time and we save on that, then that's a bonus to them, both from a time and a cost standpoint. So typically that's how we're addressing it. I'm dealing with that on a project right now, but fortunately we were able to buy down enough of the early items that now that offset has basically become a net neutral type situation. So the owner's looking at it going, hey, you did exactly what you told us you were gonna do. And luckily it worked out. In other words, our best guessing or our pre-planning was dead on. Now, was some of that just good luck? Yeah, but some of it was actually roll up your sleeves and do your due diligence and figure it out. How's it gonna map out that old, look at the, you know, look at look at the end at the beginning and then reverse engineer it back and then have the mustard to sit there and face the owner in the eyes and say this is exactly how this is going to go down and back to how we started the conversation these are our incremental contingencies that we've built in call it float in budget call it float in schedule call it float in whatever it could be something else so there's contingencies built in from a cost perspective you know to to handle this stuff you know as you need overtime or you need extra hours and you need to throw manpower then that gives you the ability or even if you know, you may have to bring in another sub, right, to double right. up and, and share that responsibility. One thing that I really admire about commercial construction, I remember, you know, through college, uh, in between, I was working for as a subcontractor for a, a firm in San Diego. And so every time I showed up on the GC job site and worked for a lot of different GCs there in San Diego, is going back to the daily logs, they were adamant. You know, we'd show up, we sign in, what time we're there, how many crews we have, the scope of work completed that day. And it was very you know, is tracked. And so there was no guessing. We were accountable. And that's something that's really lacking in residential is it's very, you know, casual, you know, guys are showing up, you're not sure who's there, how many are there, who's working. And that's another way to make them accountable. And I'm sure that's something you guys are doing yeah. on every job. It's, I don't want to say it's old hat, but you're right. In, in the commercial side, it's almost a known or a commodity or it's expected. So we don't have to break that barrier. All the trade partners that are there, they know that that's the expectation and they're getting tracked and things of that nature. The other thing is, again, with most of our contractual payment terms, there's re retainage and retention, and that's a big leverage point. I don't care what anyone says, 10%, 5% during the course of a project, that that's real leverage. That's that's their profit. And so you, you know, that's kind of the... The big boy looking over your shoulder. Call it an old school tactic. It still works. Now, I don't like to use it as strong arming. I like to use it as incentivizing. 
because uh, a lot of times we're able to negotiate the contracts with the owners where at 50% we can pay off the first, you know, whatever, so many percent to get those guys their retention earlier instead of having to wait. You know, if you're a demo or, or civil guy working front end, you have to wait 12 months to get your 10%. I mean, I don't care who you are running a business. That sucks. Mm-hmm. So, so you are can, you guys working with that? Is that a boilerplate? play thing that you guys are negotiating with the subs and yeah. for those listening what happens is is that let's say that you have a contract with your sub for a hundred thousand retention is where you know when they're done you're going to pay them 90 grand and that ten thousand is remained to be built they, they're not allowed to pay until the project's complete and it's a hold there for the owner to have a surety that the project's done and finished and there's no liens especially in commercial there's no liens and then they get paid that final 10 percent. but to jj's point you could have a year where the front end guys are waiting for that retention. So do you have phases that you're working with the owner, with the bank to say, hey, concrete guy, yeah, we're gonna hold 10%, but let's pay him in phase two, which might be three months after his job's complete. Yeah, again, it's it's one of those very important front end conversations before we ever even put the contract in front of the owner. I mean, there's paragraphs that describe that to the T and then we just exercise on that. Uh, for instance, on, on the project that we have right now on a school project, we're at that stage where I have to go to the owner and go, hey, you know, the first three or four key subcontractors, they're basically 100% billed out, and let's try to get them their retention paid in here in the first quarter of 2020. And you have you ever had pushback from the client? Not if you effectively communicated up front. I mean, of course. Uh, but it's important their lender knows too because, you know, let's face it, 95% of what we do is has, you know, a there's lender a, behind it. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's a lender behind it. I mean, we typically aren't doing $5 million cash jobs. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, just having that transparency with the lender and the owner, um, you know, have I had pushback? Yeah. But again, if you can present your case well, and if you've communicated well up front, typically it's pretty easy. Yeah. So we talked about, so one of the first problems that we have with clients is our communicate is our scheduling, right? That's our number one issue. Number two is cost. So have, has there been any historical data for your projects where you've miss that budget where you think it's going to be done and now the client's super upset when the pricing comes back because there was a miss there oh yeah i think we've all been there i mean we wouldn't have matured the way we have had we not missed them Uh, but again it's how you handle it you know have i been forced to eat it absolutely have i been in front of an owner and said listen i don't need to make money on this you know show them everything all I ask is, can you help me cover or recoup some of the costs? It's my mistake. I blatantly missed it. Shame on me. But here, look at how well we did this for you. I want you as a customer for life, and I need you as an ambassador to endorse our work uh, more on a character basis than just this one thing. Again, a building is a cumulative effect of tens of thousands of things. Are you going to let one little thing, one of one, my one mistake, leave that legacy of how our relationship is? Then I, if that's the case, then I flip the mirror and go, all right, what about you? What about the 22 times you were late for our meetings? What about the five times I asked you to make the wallpaper decision and you didn't? You know, so you, you don't want to get in that finger pointing thing. But again, if you can phrase it in a way that allows you to look at it more from a partnering and collegial uh, approach of how are we going to get through this together, uh, I just find that they've been a lot more amiable to help going, yeah, we understand the pain you're in. We've all been there. We've, you know. And for any new company, it's always going to be a little challenging as you're setting that expectation for price and budget with a client because there's no database, right? There's no historical data. And, you know, as you become more seasoned as a builder and you've had more experiences and you've worked 
uh, from a residential side, let's take it that way that you've done modern, you've done transitional, you've done Tuscan, whatever the style may be, you have a database there. You have a good pulse of what the cost is. Same for you in commercial. You know, you've done plenty of schools. And so you have a good idea based on the plans and, and you can use that, you know, to help you in the sense that we have a client right now that they have a budget that they really want to stick at. And they don't really know what that budget means. You know, they could have a million dollars for a house, but what do they get for that? You know, what kind of appliances, what kind of tile, what are good wood flooring? I mean, there's so many components to this house and it's real easy to know their budget and say, Hey, I actually have one in production. It's this very similar style. It, it matches this budget. Let's go walk it so they can see touch, feel and get some texture. And I'm sure the same thing in commercial where have you guys taken that strategy when someone wants to come build a school and they have a certain budget and you say, yeah, let's drive by one right here that we've done for that same budget. Yeah, but it's funny. As I was listening to you, I went, my ADD kicked in and I went right to something else. And that is the tangible and physical part is good. What you made me think of, though, is go back to our cost tracking and show that similar customer where we started from and where we ended. That story is even more telling and almost endearing to how that relationship is going to go. For instance, talk about those bad things. Talk about the good things. Hey, look at here. We had budgeted X. It came in at Y. We saved them ten grand over here, though. Hey, we we got you know the soil borings didn't catch it, but we our first day on the job we started digging and we found the remnants of whatever Uncle Bob's you know or a hard dig or whatever yeah. it may be. And if you can tell that story of how you started, where you ended. Uh, I think it's as as compelling as that tangible walk because they'll see the quality in your in your product, but what about the, what about the quality in your character? So I think what's really good about that is what you're alluding to, JJ, is that w when you're sitting with a client, the, something that's probably more valuable. Is say, okay, when we sat down on X house with this client, our budget was three hundred dollars a square foot. That was the intent. That's what everyone shot for. At the end of the day, we ended up at three fifty. This is reality. And why is that? Well, you know, the homeowner wanted to add, you know, a guest house or, you know, we had hard dig or we had this unforeseen or framing material went up because of the tariffs in Canada. So all these little things come into it. And that's why it's important for any builder, uh, commercial residential, that you're setting a contingency that that needs to be mandatory with the bank, uh, whether however you define that, whether it's a builder contingency, an owner contingency that needs to be defined. Um, evaluated, tracked, and so then that way, as changes are made, you know, you're managing that expectation with the client so you don't have an upset client. And we talked about this a little bit in our last episode when we are talking about GMP and cost plus, right? Contingency is a huge part to have great communication and be successful. Yes. And then defining the, the, the what and the why. Because on some of them, I don't know how you feel, Brad, but I'll just throw out some percentages for the listening audience. On some of them, we're down 2 two, 3%. On other ones, we're up at 5 or 7%. It's all dependent on how is it scoped? How is it pre-designed? What are the concepts that are coming in the door? I mean, we've all been there. You have to gauge that whole situation and then, again, frame it so they understand. Another thing that you made me think about as we were talking is I think we all wish we could scope and identify everything perfectly. That probably isn't a reality. And I struggle at times of where are we going to be 10 years from now? You know, how do we as leaders in our industry get to a level where we can take this conversation? How do we close that gap for everyone? 
because of all the external resources that are out there and how do we bridge those together. And luckily, well, you, you guys do it extensively in the, in the custom home market now as well, but in the commercial market, you know, having the BIM and the IPD and, and the modeling available almost, it's commonplace anymore. To see those, as we call them, intersections, clashes, it's not, it's not just to avoid conflict within the trade partners. It's now, how does that owner see? Because, again, we're all graphical learners, and then we justify with data, right? And the faster we can bridge that and go to, like, VR and AI and things like that, we'll then match that to master databases. Listen, I'm no genius or rocket scientist, but I think we all know the technology is there. But when can we make it affordable for everyone in every vertical to take that consternation and those gaps out of that, that sequence? We get there, and we will transform our industry to a better place where that communication all becomes so transparent, it's almost just like, I hate the word, but it, it's just uber there for you. <laughs> well, it solves a lot of problems because there's it's twofold. One, a lot of times the client has a vision of their head of what they want it to look like. The designer has specs up them, which they are planning for it to look like and this is all 2d right and then the builders now building it so you have three interpretations here and then it comes up and one of the parties may say this is not what i thought it would be and then on the second part of that when you talk about bin modeling one of the advantages is you know mechanical design a, a lot of times the engineers and architects aren't speaking to each other and so you could have a beam or a truss you know running right through the middle of the house and how are you going to get mechanical equipment you know your ducts from one side to the other and so there's a lot of planning that really helps from a cost perspective. And this goes back to the cost thing. If you're doing that pre-planning up front and setting those expectations, it'll save everybody money, time, hassle, and frustration as you begin to go vertical with construction. So one thing when you were speaking, JJ, it made it dawned on me when you're talking about um, setting clear deadlines too with the clients. You know, this is a little bit hybrid of scheduling and you know the cost side, but if you can sit there with the client and say, look, in a perfect world, we're going to have the design book done before we break ground. But in some cases, that's not reality, right? There's going to be decisions made later. And so it's real important, you know, to have that soft landing as we're communi with, communicating with our clients. I know one of my supers um, was trying to get a paint color from a client and he's like, you need to do this or else we're delaying this and there's this fee. And, you know, we sat down and said, hey, there needs to be a little bit softer landing because they're not understanding why they're delaying you. I mean, help them understand, say, you know homeowner X and Y, the reason I need this paint color is because, you know, this is the paint crew that we want to paint your house. They have an opening. We need to get them out here. This is who we want. They're within budget. If we don't make that selection, we're going to have to pivot a little bit, but it's not the ideal one, right? It's setting the expectations so they understand why they're coming in. So, you know, what are other ways that we can set that, you know, documentation or expectation with the clients, you know, just so that they understand that cause and effect? Hmm. Well, I look at it. I think I think I'm going to answer your question, or at least add add to the dialogue. Is I used to be very black and white like that too. You know, when we're young, we're we're project management driven and all those kind of things. And it was only until I would say it was like informal or formal sales training that you understand, and through other mentors that I had. Hey, when you're in that sales mode, remember you're. You're tackling their problem. What is their problem? If you don't ask and find out what their specific one is, you'll never know. You can't generalize. You can't guess. You know, it's that old, what's their right brain, um, just or what's their right brain need, and then justified with their left brain type thing. And same thing happens with these. You're talking about these soft landings. It's like, 
what's important to them okay well if it's that schedule you know that they're moving in for the wedding in may of 2020 then maybe that super should have said listen if i don't get this paint color this is what's going to happen and if you don't make susie's wedding that's really going to i'm going to look bad and i don't want to look bad to your daughter you know that kind of thing i mean i know that's kind of embellishing the story a little bit to prove a point but again you don't have to be rude or, or stern or whatever but you're just posing it in their terms their language their whatever that is so that they can better understand it i remember when i was younger i was horrible at that i'm not saying i'm good now but to be able to listen to a client and understand their pain points and then put it into that dialect i think that's very i just think that's key to understanding that because you you are generally trying to find a, a solution to that problem you're not trying to be rude but again it's not important to them because They've got basketball at 5.30, and then they've, he's got to worry. He or she has to worry about their own job at home that night. You know, remember, we're just doing a we're, – we're providing that service or that tangible result for them that they've hired us to do. So it's interesting. So, you know, as we continue to elude this conversation, so, you, you know, as you mentioned with, you know, time and, and cost, and then one of the third things, you know, that really can frustrate clients and understanding what's important to them is quality, right, the quality. And it was, it, it's kind of funny. It reminds me, when I was in college, I had a professor – and he said whenever he, he did estimating and pre-construction for the firm he worked for, and he would say that he would show up at an appointment, and the first thing you do before he knocked the door, you'd grab the doormat and pick it up. And if it was clean underneath the doormat, you know, it'd give him a little checklist. And then if he sat down to speak with the client and they brought out a coaster, right, with his glass of water, then, again, he's notating that on the checklist. And he's, and he's looking at their existing home. You know, what are some of the details? What's the quality? Because it's real important to gauge the quality or expectations. So again, we're talking about two different industries. You know, if you're doing high end residential, quality is everything, right? That's going to be a big part of what we do. Commercial is no different though. Even if it's a high traffic area, they still want things to perform and stand the test of time. So what are things that you're doing to diagnose the client's mentality when it comes to quality? Oh, this is a tough one for me because I'm going to incriminate myself, but I'll just go out there and put myself in line is for me, it is time. And it's if I can handle the budget thing, I can handle the quality to me. I wouldn't say it's a moot point because we, I mean, let's face it, most of us in our industry, we hold ourselves to a high regard on the quality. And the market. Well, me, let me let me interrupt you real quick. So, and we do, but what if you have a client that's like, JJ, at this baseboard, you know, and they're on their hands and knees with the microphone or a magnifying glass and they're saying, see this little ding, ding, and ding. So how, I mean, how are you dealing with that even in the commercial space? Because I'm sure you've had those clients that are very meticulous. Uh, good question. Uh, I probably don't deal with it very well. <laughs> um, well, I mean, you know, if it's on a punch list or something like that, we'll try to take care of it. If it's over the top, I'll, I guess I'll just address it head on. I'm like, Sorry, you know, we weren't, we're not Michelangelo. We're not building the Sistine Chapel here, painting the Sistine Chapel. You know, there's there's a price meets quality uh, balance. Mm -hmm. um, if you want a custom, you know, 14th generation German woodworker that's going to come in hand, do your newel posts and your whole handrail, well, it's going to take 14 weeks and, you know, at X amount of dollars an hour. So it's just it's just that balance. And, and it's tough, too, because you're never going to, perfectly address every single thing that goes in every single project with each client especially on the front end you know but there's little things we could do you know in a scope doc what's real important you know from the beginning 
as we're providing the pricing and we're saying, okay, the drywall for this house is going to be $100,000. Well, here's a scope. We're going to be putting in five-eighths throughout. And here's, you know, it's going to be a 95.5. And for those that are listening, you know, we tell most of our clients we're going to do a square edge and smooth finish, but we call the 95.5. And they say, well, what does that mean? Well, ideally, everything is 100% smooth, but keep in mind that this is a hand-applied labor you know intensive finish and there's a lot of mud that goes on the wall but you are going to have some little gaps some little imperfections you know 95 percent of that wall is going to be perfect and five percent will have these normal blemishes so we're trying and, and you know as we learn over the years there's these little things that come up routinely with clients and we'll put that in our scope doc and you kind of learn through trial and error you know, I, I think you addressed it brilliantly that scope document that you talked about that has become key and you're you're right Every project you learn a little bit more and then you add those in. The tolerances, for instance. I mean, I'm not going to throw any of them out here on the podcast, but, you know. No, and there are building tolerances yeah. and codes and other things. But, but, go but you can go into a deeper explanation and then it opens up that dialogue. But again, that whatever, two to three hour meeting that you have before construction ever starts to go through those. That's the important part. Now, will they remember or listen to all of it? No, but again, it's I think the tone that you set and kind of the way you communicate that that does resonate. They'll definitely remember that because then you can reference that, you know, 10 minutes from now when, when you said Mrs. Jones is down there with the magnifying glass looking at the miter joint. Hey, remember, Mary, we talked about this back 10 months ago. This is within tolerance. Um, yes, you remember, and we also have our warranty coming up. If this fail, if this gets any worse, we'll address it. We pro- it's contractual, and we would we stand by it because that's who we stand for. So what do you do now as we move aside from these topics a little bit? Now, what do you do when a client comes to you and says, okay, JJ, I have my family friend, you know, he's a, he's a contractor, does, you know, he's a plumber. Yep. And I would love him to work on this job. I'm going to get a great deal. You know, how are you managing clients? And it may not be as prone on the commercial side, but you do a lot of really high-end remodels that I know, uh, luxury remodels. So how are you dealing with a client that, wants to bring in family, friends, or favors to relationships they have? Uh, diff- that's difficult, but I let's talk about it. There's a number of things. I'll, I'll be the hardcore guy first. The I can always use the contractual thing as a vetting tool. So I'm like, are they licensed or bonded? If they're not, if they're not uh, then it's a, yeah, non- you have a it's a non-starter. Packet. It's a non-starter. Mm-hmm. Now, it, that's, that's the commercial market. So like you said, we typically don't see it. Um, the other one that I talk about is, okay, who's going to manage them? Because you may remember, if that's not in our scope, then we don't have the proper markup or coverage for it. So in essence, am I going to have to still eat it to manage that? Because are you going to manage it? And then how are you going to manage it? So you, there's a whole conversation around, all right, owner, you're trying to save a little bit of money, but in the essence, is it really going to save? And we could have a, probably a two-hour conversation on that topic alone. But then the risk as well. Like, who's going to take the liability of this? Because he's not in my scope, or he or she's not in my scope anymore, and my liability doesn't cover it, neither does my warranty, neither does this and this. So the more things that you can show that, the what do you want to call it, like the internal monetization of your management fee is really covering so many other aspects, it typically kind of becomes a moot point. And then they're like, eh, yeah, you're right. I think I'll just have your guy do it. So there's five things you bring up, and I think it's important for any builder to address with their client that you know we do even at aft we'll work with clients sometimes they have relationships and we want to honor that you know they may have someone that owes them a favor or a family member that can get them a great deal that 
a little sweat equity and that's fine you know that's that's an advantage to them and 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 i have seen that sometimes that's gone south for us and sometimes it's been great because we, we found some trade. great yeah we found great people that yeah way. we have too we've had we have some subs now that were referred by our clients and they are go-to people so it, it you it know there's both a win. ways yeah it does work both ways but i think what's important is going back to the communication there's five points we want to bring uh you know that we want to focus on so number one you talked about prequal so every builder commercial residential should have a pre-qualification packet and that will entail you know license qualifications insurance tax id whatever. tax id you know um references it'll have you know their organizational chart you know who do we speak to if there's issues you know who's the manager you know so that way at the end of the day there's accountability right so you understand if they're qualified number two you said okay who's going to manage them because the biggest issue when they're a friend of the client, sometimes they don't answer my phone anytime I call them, but they'll answer the client's phone. So it's real important to understand, are we setting an expectation, all three of us now, we're going to have the client in a room with me as the builder and the sub and say, okay, this is AFT's project or Blueway's project and you're accountable to them and you need to answer to them. Yeah, let me jump in here for a second yeah. so the listening audience understands this. So imagine that that, let's just use a plumber. Mm -hmm. If the plumber's line item budget was let's say 50 grand and you now he the owner asked to take that 50 grand out if you had your management fee in there on top of that already then okay then you should be open and honest going all right now that you've hired bob here we still have this fee in here um, we will manage it is that understandable yeah. however on cost plus if they strip that out then it takes your feet down. then it takes your feet down then that becomes you see my point that's the that those are the tougher conversations is so those people that are listening where it's a cost plus You've just given up all your, you know, well, everything. You've given up your profitability. You've given up your coverage for your overhead. Yeah, because you're gonna... basing your fee on duration and time frame and percentage on that. So as that scope's right. reduced, it doesn't, it doesn't change your duration on the job as a GC. You're still there for the same amount. You're still managing the same. It may even be more management for you now because you're managing a third party. So there has to be that communication, you know, for the fee. So that's a great point. So then number three, you know, is talking about you know the risk okay so let's really identify you know the risk when they're on job what are the expectations are they smoking on the job are they you know if they're injured from someone else are they causing injury to someone else so it's really identifying that risk which has to do with your prequal right making sure they understand your expectation as a builder and, and the job site regulations number four that you're alluding to is warranty you know who's responsible for the warranty are they get warranty it you know what's their process and paperwork and then you know going back to the risk is safety right number five so it's it's managing those five things you know the prequel who's managing them the risk the warranty and the safety you know not to be a stickler but sometimes i've even just done simple affidavits that go all right we'll do this hey bob looks like a great guy but here i i'm doing this for your protection not just me but us we're, remember we're a team in this and you know sometimes that's good and sometimes it you kind of bring up that final legalese part of it, and then they're like, eh, maybe we won't do this. But I do want to agree with you on one thing, is there are some great people out there that we've met through this thing. It's just buyer beware, and again, back to communicate, 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 and set those expectations. But again, if you phrase it like you just did, Brad, with your five points, and you've put that in the owner's um, lap of, are these the risks you want to take for that reward? Let that let that cost benefit uh, analysis come out to play in the open, 
And then if you guys can decide on that, great. If it's, if it's a non-starter, well, it's a non-starter. Absolutely. And there could be, you know, as we mentioned, there are some advantages. I mean, sometimes as builders, we're reluctant because we may have our resources or connections or, you know, clientele that we've built over the years of being in the industry, you know, of people that are reliable. But again, we should always be seeking to increase that base, right? And increase that bandwidth uh, with good people. I mean, that's what we need in our industry. So, you know, as we continue this conversation with clients, so what's really important that I've learned is how to identify red flags with certain customers in the beginning. So when you're sitting down, you know, a lot of us, as we mentioned in the very beginning of this podcast is that a lot of times we're sitting there with the client, we really want the project, maybe a trophy home, maybe a trophy commercial project. And so we want to do everything. We're, we're chasing this thing and we're failing to see some signs, you know, from the client, maybe personality or expectations that we're missing. So, you know, you know, what are those factors? Because this should be a double interview. A lot of times we come in and we're interviewing for the project, but it should be a mutual interview. So what are some things you're doing, JJ, to interview the client from your side to make sure it's a good fit? The, well, I spy on them. Just He's like everyone spies on us. Personal inspector or no, no. investigator? No, I mean, hey, you can Google anything nowadays. <laughs> Well, it's smart. You know, it's funny. I mean, we're going to divert a little bit here, but yeah. as you talk about, um, when you talk about hiring, you know, and this is, will be for another podcast, but what's funny is you talk about hiring, you know, and someone comes in and now everyone's transparent, you know, they're on Twitter, they're on Instagram, they're on Facebook. And so you can really get a feel for the people and what are the topics they're talking about? How's their yeah. language? How's their candor? Right. So it's really easy from an employee side, but now you're taking that step as you're interviewing clients, right. And you're looking up the client. Yeah. And well, but let me answer it for a little bit, and then I want to revert it back to you because it, it's the same. Because most of the people we're working for, their business, you know, yes, they have a personal life, but at the end of the day, it's usually a business owner, a manager, you know, what have you. So it's very easy to see the professional um, legacy of, of that person and what their management leadership style is. That's typically who we're dealing with. You know, luckily, we're most of the people that I have to sit across from are C-suite people that are making the decisions, so it's pretty easy. But find out. I mean, glass door, those kind of things. I mean, I, I think we all know that that gets embellished a little bit, but if there there's a tone there, it's lookout. The other one that, now again, this is where I, I think we got on this topic kind of a little earlier in the podcast, that I have a strong bias for, and it's probably one of my weaknesses, is if you're late, it drives me nuts. Because one of the things I take pride in is being on time. And one time, fine. Two times, okay, I get it. But if you're consistently late to every meeting during your pre-con arrangements or your dating period, it's it's a bad sign. Another one is, you know, cell phones and things like that in the meetings. I know we're getting into a little deeper things, but those to me are little tips of the iceberg of how do you respect my time and my value that I'm here for you? Because we're going to be in an engagement for 10 months, a year, year and a half. If that's the way you're treating my time right now, it's only going to get worse probably as we go further on. Well, especially in the honeymoon stage, right? If they're not conscious of your time, you know, this is a partnership, right? And so those are little tell yeah. signs that are showcasing that. And you were talking about research and social media. And what's funny is there's a lot of avenues now. I think one thing that we take a lot of risk as a builder is we're doing these multi-million dollar projects. Will the client perform at the end of the day, right? You know, are we asking for proof of funds? You know, are we, you know, asking the bank to say, you know, have you done projects with this client? You know, how's their payment schedule? You know, you could do research on litigation and lawsuits. What's their track record? You know, are they a 
litigious client, you yeah. know, and, and not that anything's wrong. I mean, we're not doing this to be anything wrong. I mean, they do the same thing for yeah. us, right? You want to make sure when you're investing dollars in your contractor, have they performed? Are they current with the ROC? You know, have they been in a lot of lawsuits? Do they have issues of quality? It should be a mutual uh, beneficial relationship, right? Because this is a long marriage that we're well, the, with our client. I know this sounds just out of left field, but all right, do you have references? Yeah. You know, it's funny. It's one of the notes I had is, do you have a reference as uh, a client? Let me talk about some, some other, other GCs you've, you've worked with. Yeah. Well, even go one step removed. Hey, um, who's your who's your plumber that's been servicing your thing? Or, hey, who, you know, us in Arizona, who's your pool guy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How long has he been with you? Oh, really? You've had five and ten months. That's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, just the same way that we're getting interviewed, interview them. And... I honestly think they respect it, you know, because at the end of the day, if you, if you've done that level of diligence, I think it builds rapport. It does. Well, it shows your professionalism, exactly. right? And, and not only your professionalism, but your determination and your desire to, to be beneficial to show you're here for the long run. You're going to perform. It's funny. I, I had a client and, you know, I've made some mistakes, you know, identifying red flags in the past and you, you learn from those. And there was one recently that came to me and we were, it's pre-construction. We're starting to work on budgets and, you know, getting close to uh, commencement of construction. And I'm on a conference call. He's out of state. His wife's on the phone. It's him and his wife. And he starts screaming at his wife, right? Just screaming at her. And, you know, just the way he spoke to her is I was like, I don't want, if he's going to speak to his wife that way, you know, how's he going to be speaking to me in two weeks if I didn't follow up on something or, you know, not that we want to do that. I mean, we're trying to follow up on everything, but if, something happens, can this go south? And, you know, realize really quickly that if he's going to speak this way and, you know, there were some other people in his path that had came to me and said, hey, Brad, he's kind of a irate customer and there's some red flags here. And so you start to see that and say, you know what, this probably isn't the best relationship, you know, for us to move forward on. Is there anything else you're doing? As far as vetting them? Yeah. So I think a lot of it's just fit. You know, it's, what's funny for us is we've had clients that come in and, you know, on social media, you're portraying, you know, for us, we're portraying a lot of the nice houses and upgraded homes. And sometimes I'll have clients that come in and say, look, Brad, our project isn't at this high luxury level. You know, we're a little down here. This is where we want to be. And I, I never have an issue with that. I always tell my customers, and I say, look, I, to me, the, the, the cost of the project is not significant. It doesn't matter to me. I just want to work for good people. So it's the same thing. So I have that same communication, very open with them. Here's our process. Here's what we're doing. You know, here's the staff that I'm going to put on it. We staff it heavy and who's who you have. And very similar to you, you know, we're checking their backgrounds. We're checking their proof of funds. We're checking their commitment. And another thing that we're doing is we set the expectation up front for change orders. You know, we never want to get to the end of the project where money's an issue. So if they're adding change orders, we bill them 100% when they sign the change order. And so the advantage is because a lot of times these change orders are outside of the bank draws. So then we know the funds are there, they're paying for them, and they're fine with that. And it it alleviates the risk, you know, for us, you know, to be doing all these options and change orders that may not get paid for at the end of the day. No, good job. I mean, just in answering that, because I was trying to think about how that translates over to the commercial side. And we typically don't have that stuff outside the lending package. But yeah, so it's a little different. It's a little different, but, it, but handled the same way. What about, um, so let's get to the net, that next level conversation. So what happens when it does go south? You know, that's a great question. And it, it was funny. I actually had a subcontractor call me today and they are working with 
someone and it's going south and they're in litigation and he's asking some advice. And, you know, I, I found over the years that, you know, all of us, despite our good intentions, despite our desire to be the best, you know, things break down in communication or processes or whatever it may be that led us to this point. And I found that for us, you know, at the end of the day, you know, litigation, legal action is going to cost everyone a lot of money. And so when things have gone south, I just try to be upfront with the clients and contact them, reach out and say, look, we're here, right, wrong or indifferent, we're here. What can we do to rectify this and get where we need to be and just be available? I mean, you know, I always want to be accessible to our clients and let them know at the end of the day, we're here. You know, this is my livelihood. This is my family, you know, that I'm supporting and our, our work family as well. And they have families like this is really important to us. And so in our best effort, and we've been fortunate to never go down that road where it's gotten ugly. You know, we've been able to at least come to an agreement or settlement, but it's tough. I mean, it's a tough thing to do. What about you guys? Yeah, I mean, well, I'm crossing my fingers and tapping on the table. I'm talking to Brad that I've never been had to go down that path either. Now, have we had things that have gone south? And the answer is yes. Um, and quite honestly, some of it was my bullheadedness at a younger age. Not that I'm still not bullheaded, but trying to be more amiable and open-minded and finding those solutions, like you said. I find that, hopefully I'm finding this earlier, though, that I see the red flags earlier and earlier, and I'm paying it forward in a different fashion. And I know that sounds a little bit cliche and old-fashioned, but, but here's like the scenario. When you see someone at that sales stage or that pre-construction stage when you're still doing that, that dating period, and it's obvious it's not going to be a good fit, how do you find them a solution so you can still pay it forward? And I, I think we talked a little bit about this on one of the previous podcasts, but finding someone that matches them that can still get them their, their project or their solution, I think it just it's, it's a good thing to do. Sometimes you can't, but uh, I found that it actually comes back tenfold. You know, there's nothing better than saying no, only to find out two years later, hey, you know, JJ, thank you. That really worked out. You know, Bob was a great guy. I got to quit using Bob. Mary was a great gal, and that worked out. Now we've expanded this, this, and this. Yeah, I don't care who you are. If you're that petty that you don't like hearing those good stories, then shame on you. But to know, to kind of come to that inner uh, intersection, to know that it won't be a good fit for you, that it's just like it's so relieving. Well, what's interesting is you, you're alluding to, it's not about being right. It's about getting it right, you know, at the end of the day. And so sometimes relationships can be saved, even as, as sour as they may be, because when you look at the, you know, the cost effect of something, you know, we've had an, we had an issue where we had recommended a professional for the client, you know, that they contracted direct, they met with them, they went through the scope. I mean, we recommended a few, but they hired one of them. Things went South and they, they wanted me to be responsible and pay the difference and I'm like well I you know this really isn't my scope I mean I referred some people but at the end of the day you hired them and you're managing them and you're working with them um you know and it was one of those things where you know we as a business we could look at this and say okay well you know if this was to get in litigation we're going to pay x dollars to legal and go through this song and dance or we can just say look let's skip that let's take care of it and now they're going to be happy right and so there, there's advantages there, even though at the end of the day it may affect our pocketbook. But if you can fix that relationship or find some common ground and just get it right um, and not worry about whether we're right, wrong, indifferent, just do what we can from customer service. I mean, that's probably been our best strategy to date. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's 
none of us like it, uh, but we've all been forced to be there. And, you know, I, I look at it as a legacy moment versus, you know, near term. And if you can create that into a positive legacy moment, then, hey, because I look back at looking at some of them in, in the rearview mirror going, does it really matter now? It didn't. And yeah. so there's no sense in getting irate and being that screaming person that you don't want to be sitting across from. Yeah, and I tell you one, I mean, don't confuse my kindness with weakness, right? I mean, it's still, you know, we're still fair, right? And we're we're still aggressive, but we can, um, you know, have a professional relationship, you know, professional uh, discussion. So as as we close, JJ, I mean, what what are things you're doing? I mean, if you have a customer that's a screamer or someone that gets irate, I, I've... I remember working for a development and the owner of the development, I, I was in a meeting where he's throwing water bottles at a staff, right? And no kidding aside, this was 10 years ago, but what do you do when you've had that client? Because I'm sure in commercial, it's a, it can get more heated, especially when there's you know, revenue at the other side when something has to be open. So how are you handling that client? Well, just face to face and headstrong. You know, it's like that old saying, what is it? Uh, praise and praise in public and criticize in private or whatever. It's just like the employee-employer relationship. If someone's doing bad things, pull them aside, have, have the meaningful conversation and just address it head on. If you don't nip it in the bud, it's going to become an inferno. And sometimes if it's just too bad or you have to separate things, like I've had to put different project managers or superintendents on a job before to make it work. Um, does that cost us money? Yeah, but it's short-term loss for long-term gain. Because um, usually it's resurrected, and then just buy it out. And I don't mean buy it out as in financial, but just buy out the time, put in your best effort, one foot forward, and, and get through it. I think we've all had to be there before. Uh, it's not sexy, it's not attractive, and it's not fun. But at the end of the day, it's you know it's business. It is. And if it was if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. Absolutely. Well, we hope that you guys gain some insight here. I mean, JJ has been a great guest. That's why I've had him on a few times. We'll continue this conversation you know, to address a lot of the different topics that our listeners have. So any that you have, reach out to us. We'd love to speak about it. Again, JJ, even though some of our followers have found you in the past, for those new ones that have joined us, where can they find you? Uh, JJ Levinsky and Blue Wave General Contracting based out of Chandler, Arizona. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. And if there's any, like Brad said, if there's anything else you want us to talk about, um, we're game. Awesome. Well, thanks, JJ. You've been amazing. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you all for tuning in to the podcast today with JJ. And we just returned back from Miami, and we were really fortunate to be invited by Lux Magazine and recognized as a Gold List member of 2020. And it was great to see some of our fellow architects and designers from Phoenix. They're with us in Miami and visit with them. And definitely stay tuned for next week's podcast. And it'd really help a lot if you go on to Spotify or iTunes and give us a five-star rating and review. Thank you.